Dude, I'm surprised you're awake. I thought Take you guys were going to give me a taste of my own medicine by showing up really late. Yeah, we should have. Sorry when I was calling that. you yesterday and you weren't answering, I just want to give the listeners an idea of what your voicemail sounds like on your phone. It goes something like this. Hey, this is Bisk. <laughs> Leave a message or whatever. I don't care. If this is Pizza Hut, <laughs> then you have no proof on the Dine and Dash claims. And my lawyer says that I don't have to talk to you anymore. So please quit calling. <laughs> For all their inquiries, I take Tuesday through Fridays off. <laughs> and may God bless you. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put internally at your disposal. I took a nap today, which made me feel... I was nice. zonked today yeah, during class. Lunch. Yeah, I didn't even go to lunch. I just slept. Yeah. Oh, man, that's like college, man. Just I'm just going to skip meals and sleep instead. Yeah, I don't do that very often, but I needed it today. Had well, that. on the bright side of things, yesterday when I slept in, I felt amazing. When I was talking to you guys, I, and then I went and prayed for a while and just took a leisurely morning. Nice. So said the mass in my room. And, Dude, good for oof, you, man. It was nice. Mm. You know, because I woke up. I woke up a couple times. I set my alarm for like 7.20. I was going to get up and, you know, take care of business. But like I told you, I'd been up past midnight reading. I finished last night. I finished the first Lord of the Rings. And yesterday afternoon, I finished Lancelot. But uh, Sunday night, I got back late and just got into those things. And How insane is the ending of that book? Of Lancelot? Yeah. Pretty insane. But I, I have to say... I'm not sure that I get it or that I responded the same way as most people do or did. Hmm. Like I I looked it up. I just wanted to I was kind of confused by the ending. And I sensed that there was something there so I just googled what is what is the meaning of Lancelot by Walker Percy. Mm-hmm. And I, I read some review from some recent blog. Dude, by <laughs> the way, this is like a uniquely millennial thing. Like read a book and just tell me what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> Search it on the internet. That's true. Just put it into Google. Tell me, internet, what did that book mean? I, I just read this classical work to help shape my brain and like form my soul. Tell me what it means, yeah. internet. <laughs> so I tried to read that book, I think when I was on internship, and I read like 50 pages of it and put it down. Of Lancelot? Yeah. He never told me that. I, yeah, I thought it was... I didn't get it. That's the way I was with Lost in the Cosmos, which is why... Walker Percy has never really beckoned me, hmm. but Mike, I think you you mentioned it a while back that it was like the most haunting book you ever read. So I I had ordered it and it was on my coffee table and I just picked it up the other day. But I cruised through it. Um, what did what did the internet? Tell you oh, so about- the internet sort of echoed what you said, which was like it made you you know the characters. It's just the one character monologue who's talking to like a priest psychologist the whole time. And he's got this really dark view 
I guess he's got a really dark view of humanity, but I, my problem was the review and my sense of what most people reading this when it was written in the 70s and even to now, their sense would be like, oh, this guy is so deranged and cynical and evil. Whereas I thought he made some really good points. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, even though I wouldn't agree with him practically in the way, I mean, he was obviously a murderer and a psychopath and an unfeeling guy in terms of his humanity. But his observations about the modern era, the, the whole idea of like, I will not tolerate this age, this pornographic age and lack of chivalry. And uh, some of the stuff he said about culpability and responsibility, like there's there's really no evil in the world. That was his, his point. Like modernity has just sort of explained away evil. And Chesterton makes a similar point that there's no such thing as evil anymore, just sickness, you know? Like if you wanted to point to pure evil, You'd say like, well, Hitler and the Nazis, but everybody agrees that Hitler was a madman and everybody else was just following orders. Right. It's all just psychotherapy. Right. And so there's no, if there's no evil, there's no good. There's no, you know, like he wanted to return to a Catholicism. If he was going to be Catholic, then he wanted to be a crusader, not a, like a make love, not war hippie kind of person. You know what I mean? It was, the, it's the decadence, the decadence of modernity. Um, that he was so upset by and he lashed out against it. But so I was, I was ambivalent at the end of the book. Uh, cause I kind of was sympathetic to him, even though he was clearly so, so deranged. Well, but the way, he, the way that I had it explained to me, and I don't know how long we want to stay on this because I don't know if this will be usable, but is Walker Percy, one of his biggest things, which I'm told he highlights in the movie goer, which is, I think his most famous work. Mm-hmm. Um, he was so huge on the person to person, the need for a human to human interaction when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. And so like, if you look throughout the whole book, the character who's, who's narrating the story through the, it's basically this like huge monologue where he tells his own story. Um, he gives you facts about the listener who is kind of like us as the reader and how the priest who's the listener slash us is going through this little tiny conversion throughout the entirety of the story. And so like at one point he stopped and he's talking to a lady weeping in a graveyard, I think. And then one day he comes in and he's wearing his clerics, which he had never worn before. Mm-hmm. And the guy makes like a big scene about that. Um, and so like the final end of the book is that guy giving his whole spiel on the anti-gospel and how there is no good or there is no evil. And then is when it becomes the part where the priest evangelizes. And like that's where it's, it picks up as the reader slash listener of the story to have the person-to-person interaction. So like where the story drops is supposed to be where the gospel inserts, where the gospel comes into the guy's life. I could see that. Because it was all about like, do you think there's a possible redemption? Do you think that I could have a new life? Right. Yeah. Right. And he asks all those questions. And another story, like, is just a small anecdote to illustrate the point that Walker Percy, I think, was making, was he has one where a guy goes to a, a psychologist, and he he keeps he's doing something wrong, me like sleeping with a girl, and he's feeling really really guilty about it. So he goes to the psychologist and keeps saying like, "Man, I don't know like what I'm having all this guilt, and I don't know what to do about it. Like I don't know what it means and." 
and I need your help. And the psychologist is like, well, we can, uh, we can give you some medicine to take away the guilt. Like we can <laughs> basically numb you to right. it. And the guy's like, no, 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 the guilt's not the problem. He's right. like, the guilt is, is a good thing. It's showing me that there's something more going on there. And the guy's like, well, what do you want me to do? And he's like, no, I want you to help me with my guilt. And he's like, yeah, we'll take it away. And the guy's like, no, you don't get it. The guilt isn't the problem. Mm-hmm. The guilt is, is the thing that's showing me there's something wrong. Right. Which is kind of this way of saying, like, modernity isn't going to say something's right or wrong. Like, sleeping, you know, have, committing adultery is right or wrong. They just want to take away the bad feeling of the guilt that, that comes along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of actually addressing the problem, you know, they just say there is no problem and we're going to medicate you. Or like the guilt is the problem, you know? Yeah. Feeling wrong about doing something sinful is the problem, not the sinful act itself. That's what he's trying to say. Right, and that is, that's another thing I found compelling about the uh, monologue of the of the guy in the nuthouse in uh, Lancelot was his caricature of, I mean, this is the middle of the 70s when he's writing this, but his caricature of that era of Catholicism was um, everything is so beautiful, God is everywhere, but don't do that. But even if you do, it's not so bad. You know what I'm saying? Like that, yeah, that worldview of like, let's just accept everybody and everything and everything's got a seed of the word and um, you know, don't do these things because they're bad or do do these things because they're good. But even if you don't live up to it, it's not that bad because God is love. And like instead of these hard line, you know, here is what's right. And that is wrong. And so it's worth dying for or fighting for what's right. Well, Kunkel actually said it pretty good in our Sacraments of Healing class, quoting Cardinal Dolan. Uh, he said, Cardinal Dolan, I, I think it's in letters to, uh, what is it? Priest of the Third Millennium? Yeah. Is the it in book based on his conferences. I yeah. think it might be. And oh, he I need said to get that, that book again. Dolan says something like, oh, yeah, everyone nowadays says, like, you're good, I'm good, everything's okay. And in reality, it's, you're an ass and I'm an ass, and now we need a savior. <laughs> yeah. And I think that kind of, I, I mean, it definitely highlights the point. That definitely resonates with me. And another thing. So, how's uh, the school year going? It's good. It's freaking so hot right now. That's oh, yeah. I mean that's that's like what's on my heart. Like more than anything. We're in Mike's room and it is so hot. You got the windows closed? No, we don't even have the windows closed. Um but just in general up on old 3 North. It's it's blazing. Yeah. Uh, sorry to but hear good. that. We're just roughing it up here in the seminary. Yeah, man. Mhm. I'm actually cold. Are you wearing two pairs of gloves right now? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the Rockies. <laughs> uh, yeah. Dang it. Dang it. No, pretty good. I'll be, I don't know. I mean, it's been a little rough, honestly, getting getting back and like readjusting to sitting through class all day and everything. I mean, it's been, it's been good to be back, uh, but it's just, yeah, it's it's crazy to be back at the same time. So that's my two cents. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. excited to be back. Um, just the environment of the campus and being with like-minded people, it's nice. Um, and also, like, the classes today, you know, you have your first week of syllabus week. 
And then I got to go out to D.C. this past weekend to be with uh, Archdiocese for the Military Services, our convocation. Who, by the way, I met a kid, a seminarian out there, Armando, and uh, I'd never met him before. And I come up to him and I'm like, hey, what's up? I'm Michael Metz. And he goes, you don't know who I am, but I know you very well. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? It's a kind of creepy thing to lead with. (laughs) You don't know me, but I know you. I know you. <laughs> he was just a really big fan of the podcast and was entering seminary and was very, very grateful for the podcast. Mm. So shout out to Armando. Cool. Uh, but this first week of, you know, like real classes, really getting into it, it's edifying being fed with like really new theological um, understandings, especially of scripture. Like our Old Testament class today was really good. Mm-hmm. It was. Uh, yeah, it was very great. Schoenstein is brilliant, man. Yeah. The guy quotes at length in Hebrew, like passages from the Old Testament. Yeah, you, just, see him, you see him quoting stuff from the Old Testament. He's translating on the fly. You can tell because his Bible is backwards because it's in Hebrew. Dang. That dude is really, really smart. Yeah. Well, guys, cherish it while it lasts. Yeah. How is the parish? Going well. But uh, I've been thinking about the the whole fellowship like-minded thing. I mean, it's not like I have not like-minded people here at the parish, but it's just different than being with a bunch of friends living in the same cam, and it's just a, a totally different style of life. Um, harder to... I mean, I'm glad that we do this, but it'd be, it's different than every single day kind of coming home to the same 12 guys on your hallway and... You're all kind of on the same track, same page. Um, yeah. That fellowship or community aspect of it. I was thinking about that because a couple of things. I had a really good conversation with somebody at uh, Sister's Final Vows on Sunday. And something about it, I don't know if I was just tired. My back was super stiff all day Sunday because I'd done deadlifts on Friday. And I haven't, I haven't lifted in a while. I've been trying to do like push-ups and sit-ups in my room and stuff because I've, I've just noticed that I've gotten out of the practice of getting swole. So I'm trying to get back into it. And the other day I, I went ham and did deadlifts and a lot of them. So I was feeling strong and I played golf. I walked the golf course nine holes and I was just kind of trying to move my body a little bit, get out of the office, get out of the lazy boy and do something and uh then by sunday it was like chickens came home to roost and i just couldn't bend over you know those lower back muscles it feels like two toe straps if they're yeah. tight it feels like two toe straps just like completely taut and just bending down was brutal so i was in kind of a gnarly mood sitting there for my third mass at sister's vows but it was a beautiful occasion but something about the uh the whole jubilation of it all. And the same goes for ordinations. You know, it, it makes complete sense, you know. It's like a wedding. It's a person's... It marks the beginning of uh, this life of committed love. And it's a, it's a huge, beautiful occasion. But uh, I guess I was also aware of the fact that it's also a terrible reality to confront that this person is embracing their cross. You know, whether it's religious life or priesthood or even marriage, uh, 
in different and varying degrees. It's an awesome and awful thing to witness someone committing to break free of the prison of the ego and to lay down their life, especially in religious consecration and priesthood ordination. There's that prostration during the litany of saints and they're just laying there before the altar uh, physically and spiritually giving themselves away to something much bigger than them. And it's a, just a symbol of what's going to happen for the rest of their life. Their life is not about them anymore. And uh, what sometimes it brings false to me is like the, and maybe this is just me projecting onto other people. Uh, like I'm the only one that realizes this in the crowd. I'm sure that's not true. There's all sorts of people that are married and priests and they know what it's really like. And it's not all flowers and trumpets. Um, but that, uh, oh, look, we have, you know, all these young nuns wearing habits and look at these young priests and the, the future of the church is very bright, you know, and uh, we, we made it through the, the selfish, selfish age where no one was becoming nuns or priests and blah, blah, blah. And that sort of like Pollyannish attitude to me always feels like, no, the fight is so real. You know what I mean? Like, it almost feels like a, a drop in the bucket, you know? One more nun or one more priest going out into this world that is so deaf to the gospel. Deaf to the freedom of, of obedience and surrender. And instead wants to remake the world and remake even the human person in the image that they want, you know? And putting on a habit or clerics or becoming celibate or obedient or poor for the sake of the kingdom is so radical and so against the grain that it will, it will just be, you know, there's no cultural pressure pushing people into it. It has to be a deliberate choice to completely renounce all the values of this culture. And it is, it's a crucifixion, man. And I don't want to be over dramatic, but um, I guess I just had this this sense of reality. You know, doing parish ministry now, it's people are great. You know, people love you, people respect you, people respond in different ways to what you say and what you preach. But like trying to build a Catholic culture, even in a small parish community, you know, trying to communicate why people should go to confession, why people should get sacramentally married, why people should not have sex before they're married. Like these just basic moral principles, much less like understanding the rich theology of the Eucharist. And, you know, you're just trying to get them to go to mass on Sunday because they don't, they feel no pressure. Like, well, if I don't like it, then I shouldn't have to do it. You know, and you're just like, oh, where do you even start with that attitude toward life? You know, just doing whatever you want. Um, and, that's why maybe the maybe that's why the Walker Percy thing was kind of resonating with me. Yesterday, three times in like less than an hour, the same exact idea uh, came to me from different sources. Has that ever happened to you guys? Where you're like reading something and then you're watching a TV show and then you're listening to something. Oh yeah, and and like it's all just clicking the same exact idea. Oh yeah, it's pinging around in the brain, dude. So. Yesterday, I was I read the introduction to City of God, and it, the first chapter is about the sack of Rome by the Visigoths in 410, and Augustine was 
arguing against the people who said, oh, the reason Rome was weak was because it came, became Christian and abandoned the old polytheistic gods. And Augustine's argument is, no, Rome became weak because it got decadent after the fall of Carthage when there was no longer an external threat. They no longer had to be virtuous and self-restrained. Um, and so they got weak and they got vicious and unvirtuous. And then I was watching The Walking Dead. Have you guys ever watched that show? I watched the first season when it came out. I've never seen it. It's all right. Uh, it's kind of cathartic to watch people kill zombies. Um, but I've watched it off and on, and I was watching one of the episodes, and they, after having been out in the the thick of the, the shiza of all the Walking Dead and all the bad people who are trying to take advantage of the few people who are left alive, they find this kind of sanctuary place, and they're very suspicious of it. Uh, why would these people be so welcoming or innocent when they've been out in the in the wasteland of Zombieland? And multiple of the characters said once they realized like these, these people are for real, like they've been insulated from all of this stuff outside, and they don't realize the dangers. And they're like, if we stay here, we'll become weak like them because you know they're they're not constantly under threat. They don't have to always be vigilant of the enemy, you know. And then I was listening to, I listen sometimes on Audible to the great courses. They have these like 24 lecture series on a topic. And I was listening to one in Western civilization. They were talking about the early civilizations like Egypt and Mesopotamia. And he was talking about the Hebrews and how they're basically just these tribes loosely affiliated. But then because of the Philistines, this great threat, they had to unite. So that's why they had the kingship of Saul and then David and then Solomon. And then by the time of Solomon, the Philistines were really no longer a threat. And that's when the kingdom started dividing up and started falling and everything like that. And because they didn't have that common enemy anymore, that external threat that forced them to be more vigilant. And so that idea, I, I wrote it down. I'm like, okay, God, why have I heard that same basic idea three times in like an hour and a half? Um, the lack of external threat or the lack of the, the, the knowledge of an enemy makes you decadent and more lax. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't know if I'm just clanging like a cymbal. And yeah, no, 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 no. I do get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. Um, and I don't know if it connects to the, the whole thing about the, the vows. <laughs> Maybe that's just like yeah. a really dark... I'm not in a dark place or anything. I'm happy, but I'm, just, <laughs> I'm confronting the realities every single day. Father. I'm like, trying to be uh, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, you know? Yeah. If I was you, I would just wear hair shirts and go around pointing to things randomly in Blue <laughs> Island. You'd be like, who is this guy? And I don't mean to say that Blue Island is is in any way uniquely, you know, sinful or anything like that. It's just... Our whole culture is secular. Our whole culture acts as if God doesn't exist and it doesn't matter. You know? Well, it is interesting. I'm just going to throw out some stuff that has been pinging around as of late. But uh, I did hear a podcast recently on the way up to Chicago, actually driving with uh, Paul. And one of them was called Tribal. And the podcast was, oh, it was Art of Manliness podcast. And the guy had a guest speaker on who wrote a book called Tribal, and his whole argument is um, 
humans excel when we're in communities of like 30 to 40. This guy was in the army, so that's like a platoon size. And when you have an enemy that's present and near, like danger is right in front of you, then everyone actually puts aside their egos and begins to work like, you know, full steam ahead. All the cogs are clicking. Everyone's working together. But he said that only happens when you have the enemy that's right there present in front of you. Um, and he was kind of giving a critique of globalization and like huge communities of human beings that they they don't really have anything to unify around. So I don't know if that's fair to say that you have to have a bad guy in order to be unified, but that was the claim that he was making. Um, and then thinking about today in Old Testament, Father Schoenstein, he was talking about like early Jews before it was really even Judaism. I guess this must have been Judaism when they had the Holy of Holies and they would send a priest in um, to, you know, I guess it wasn't offering sacrifice, but Father Schoenstein said that they would come in and they would tie a rope around the priest who would walk into the Holy of Holies and he would literally throw blood all over the Holy of Holies. And he didn't really get into the significance of that. I guess it's like offering the blood blood to the Lord the of the sacrifices. But he said nobody would clean it. Like the Holy of Holies was just a coagulated room full of dried blood. <laughs> I didn't realize that. That stunk. Yeah. It, it would, I mean, imagine that. Years and years of a priest coming in and throwing blood everywhere and no one cleaning it up. So then there's like flies festering and... The stench is just awful. So he said that's why they would use all this incense. And it made me think of um, Till We Have Faces, which, of course, he juxtaposes, like, the beauty of, um, what's the main character's name? Whoever. The beauty of religion as compared to, like, the gruesomeness of ritual and how really earthy and, like, really horrific it is when those priests would come in and offer up sacrifices. In the line that he said, he said, um, horror and beauty are both things that can lead to the sublime. Hmm. Um, and that was the thing that I was thinking of when you were talking about the vows where, yeah, there, there is a beautiful reality. It is uh, entering into a structure uh, of committed love for the rest of your life. But there's also the cross and like this gruesome death and not to over uh, dramatize it, but both of those things are present, which leads to the sublime, um, like the the veil being being lifted and having this experience of God. And he said, and I'll just say this to kind of conclude the whole point, but the Jews clarified their understanding of God only after the Babylonian exile. So prior to that, they had kind of a polytheistic understanding of Yahweh, where they thought that like Yahweh was... King he was just stronger of, than the other gods, but the yeah, other gods, yeah. He was king of this land, so once we got kicked out of this land, like we're we're not in his kingdom anymore, so we can't even pray to him. Hmm. And it pushed their understanding of who God actually is. And it wasn't until the actual exile that they came back and had a, a more pure understanding of who the Lord was and started to understand that like there is one God, and it developed into this monotheistic religion where you could worship him anywhere, where you could worship a God who is transcendent um, to all of those things. But it came from the horror of being exiled from the land that they considered their home, that that was tied with their cultural and religious worship, 
Um, but how like the horror of that, which a lot of the Psalms and Lamentations speak about, led to the sublime as well. So both the beauty and the horror can lead to this real experience of God there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like unless you have, if it's all just sunshine and rainbows, it, uh, I mean, that's the, the Lancelot thing. Like God is, God is so good, beauty is everywhere. Um, just try to avoid this thing or that thing. But even if you do, you know, it's not your fault. Um, God still loves you and everything like that. And that, that is all true. But if that's all you hear, rather than like the readings for this Sunday is the prodigal son is the gospel. But the first reading is Moses pleading with God on the mountain, not to kill everybody after they went and started worshiping the golden calf and saying, he's the one who took us out of Egypt, you know, um, and this idolatry and and Moses is standing between God's wrath and God's people. And I think like to not understand the mercy of God as the staying of a just and swift retribution that we more than deserve, then you don't understand the, you don't understand the beauty and power of mercy. You know, if it's taken for granted, um, that, oh, everything's going to be all right, you know? But, like, the Jews had to reckon with the fact that their culture and civilization really was dismantled at the Babylonian, Babylonian exile, and they had to deal with problems of theodicy. Like, is God really real? Is God really powerful if this was able to happen to us, who are his chosen people? You know, and uh, we kind of feel like that with the with the church that, I mean, I, I so so often feel like our conversations about the future of the church at least in this country or in in the Western kind of European influenced countries, still takes for granted that people want the sacraments or people have formed and robust consciences that they listen to and uh, can consult in term in in moral and sacramental matters. And uh, my experience is that most people don't even have the vocabulary to to talk about those things, much less reflect and meditate on them and take seriously their relationship with God. It's just, um, you know, we are starting from scratch in a lot of ways. Uh, and it's, uh, I don't know, unless you kind of confront that reality that everything you know, it's not just going to be like patch a few holes on the ship and it'll it'll be fine. It's like, guys, we need, we need to do like serious repairs and overhauls and like, you get what I'm saying? Like the Catholic culture of the 60s, the people thought, oh, we're just opening it up and we're, that whole attitude of like, let's, uh, let's just make everything really easy and let's make the mass less transcendent and more about the people. And I, I'm just seeing like the, the results of that practically. Sure have been horrendous. I mean, people, the liturgical movement of that era of Vatican II was trying to make the Mass more accessible to people so that they could understand the richness of it and be more attracted and able to participate in it. But the participation rate, even people showing up and putting their butts in the seat, is less than a quarter in the U.S., and that is astronomically higher than Europe, Hmm. where those reforms were more, uh, even more, like, vehemently made and are even more vehemently clung to now even with their empty churches they're like you know we got to make the mass more 
circular, more horizontal. And I think that people will respond more to like, there is a war afoot for souls. And, uh, you know, the devil is trying to convince us that we don't need God and that our own selfish self-satisfaction will make us happy and it won't. And we need people to step outside of that way of looking at the world and shock people into seeing it a different way. And part of that uh, is like incense and mystery and transcendent worship and ritual that calls us to be better not just tell us we're all doing fine. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it sounds like you've experienced some of the hard truth of that. Right. What? So can you give maybe some of your experience, like an account of it? Um, well, I, I can give you some graces, actually. I think that w- we said this a while ago, or I did, that I think one of the most fruitful things I've done at the parish or that we've done is to have a weekly holy hour with Eucharistic adoration, with confessions, uh, even though it's a it's a tiny community that comes on Tuesday evenings, uh, I just have this sense that this is this will be the source of renewal in any parish is prayer and petition and repentance. You know, so confession, Eucharistic adoration being in the presence of Jesus and and answering a call to be obedient rather than just trying to like, Oh, we're going to program the way our way out of this. And, you know, we got to get the youth and all this stuff and just make it fun and play more guitars and all that stuff. It's so superficial and it's just putting band-aids on. And the people that come to all of those things are always just the people that are already coming anyway. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like to actually reach people who are, who don't see the value or don't understand or feel far from God, you have to, you have to have these sort of ways that people can engage deeply in their hearts with what God is calling them to do and be and to also engage some of the uncomfortable truth of the fact that you've alienated yourself from God, but there's a way back, you know, like truth telling, but letting God do it instead of me all the time, because I'm a, I'm a sinner too. I'm a hypocrite. Uh, and I'm, I've, drink in this culture every single day of commercialism, consumerism, individualism. Uh, and I'm trying to get out of it too. But uh, just seeing like for so long, all the confessions were or a, a huge number of the confessions were just sort of people coming in and talking about their um, difficult emotional situations, you know, whether it's their family or, you know, not really understanding that confession was about here are some decisions I've made that have alienated me f- from God. For instance, not going to mass on Sunday or this other thing, you know, like uh, we complain about, oh, back in the old days, people just went in. It was so pharisaical. They just they just name all their sins, get a penance, say their two Hail Marys and be forgiven. And there was no real change of life. Uh, But by taking away that way of confessing of like, here is the list of things that count as sins. If you did them, say it and how many times you did it and then repent and try to do better instead saying it has to be more personal and conversational Hmm. Uh, most people just end up not knowing what to say and so they just talk about things that are unpleasant in their lives that may or may not have anything to do with their own decisions and so it gets harder to examine your conscience or to have a sense of sin uh, and therefore have a sense of grace and mercy and what it's for 
but slowly but surely, like both in homilies and in confession itself, trying to guide people that way, it's made, it makes hearing confessions very difficult and, and patience trying because you think, you're like, are these even confessions, you know? And after a while, people sort of get it and uh, it, makes it, it makes you feel more like you're a priest. You're doing the thing that, that I'm not just a psychologist. I'm not just here for you to talk out your problems. I can do that, but not here in the confessional, you know? And so that's taken some time, but I feel like that has been a really fruitful thing for me to do, you know, to, and even this weekend, all the readings are about repentance and sin and mercy and God's willingness to forgive us. And I kind of, my first thought reading the readings earlier yesterday and today in my holy hour was don't waste this gift either by not taking advantage of it or by just taking it for granted that I don't need to go to confession or I don't need to really change because God loves me anyway. Um, and so I wrote up a short little survey and uh, I'm going to talk to my pastor, see if we can have people fill it out in mass today, uh, this Sunday. And I just want to get, I want to get a sense of, first of all, like male, female breakdown, your age, in other words, like when you grew up, whether you grew up in this country or not, whether you were baptized and catechized or whether you were just baptized and never received your other sacraments. And then tell me when the last time you went to confession was, whether it was in the last two months, last year, one to four years ago, five to ten years ago, more than ten years ago, or you've never been. And then I just wrote down some reasons, like check all the reasons that apply for why you don't go to confession more often. One, there are no convenient times when confession's available. Two, I can't think of any sins I need to confess. Three, I'm not sure how to go to confession, like what to say, etc. Four, I'm concerned that the priest will judge me if I'm vulnerable with him. Five, I believe that God has already forgiven me for my sins, so I don't need to go. Six, I can't receive absolution because of my marital situation. You know, you're divorced and remarried, so you can't uh, receive absolution. Or I've never received my sacrament, so I ne- I've never been to confession. Or other and you can tell me some other reason. But just to see some breakdown of like, I'm curious why why people stay away and how I can help people to take more advantage of it. Um, because I think that these this is like the growing edge or the bottleneck for us is like, do we, are we capable of, of communicating the message that you're not okay, but that's okay? You know what I mean? Or do we just have to, is our only solution to the problem of broken families and depressed people and the decadence of our culture and the breakdown of, of civility and our political discourse and all that is just like, well, everything's all right anyway. And, you know, God is love, so don't worry about it. Or do we actually have some way to heal? You know what I mean? That's a super cool idea, the survey. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Because I don't know if many people oftentimes have a forum to communicate that stuff to the priest. Um, so it kind of gives them permission to... Air yeah, and it's anonymous, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Correct me if I'm being wrong. Am I being too harsh or is this real? I don't think so. I don't know why I don't have anything to say, honestly, like this whole time. But I've agreed with everything... You've said, certainly. Um, It's like the... I don't know. I was just thinking, you know, I was kind of... When you were talking, I was like thinking back to certain experiences over the summer and stuff like that. And um, 
I don't, it's just like this whole notion of, yeah, like the question maybe that people are asking is, is it real? Like, is it, because I feel like people do realize, everybody like realizes it to some, to some degree, like they, there isn't, not everything is right in my life. Um, you know, like, you know that like our relationships are, are off with each other, um, and with ourselves. But it's like, I w I was honestly just thinking like when you were talking there of like when I was in the hospital over the summer, like how often people were frustrated and how often people had no idea what the medical staff was talking about. Mm. But they were going to do exactly what they said. Right. And it was like, I, I don't know. I guess I hadn't reflected on that too much, honestly. Um, but I would go in as the chaplain and just kind of ask them how it was going. And the conversations, several of them that I would get into then are very consistently would be like, oh, yeah, Doc says I can't have, like, this food. Don't know why, but, like, that, I mean, they were, like, disciplining themselves to not do that or whatever, like, change of life they needed. They were at least under the resolve to do so. And, like, their family was around them. And you better believe, like, even if it made the person mad, the family was going to make them like follow that prescription of mm. whatever, whatever it was. Sometimes it was drastic. Um, and I, I thought about that a little bit, I guess of like, <clears throat> I guess in the spiritual life. Yeah. I mean, if you, does that make sense? Like what I'm trying to ask? Yeah. Right. Like, no, like, you don't expect, you don't expect the patient to be able to understand all the doctor's reasoning. You know, I guess that's what I'm, what I'm running yeah. up against is like, I do. I want to explain to everybody the reason behind all of this stuff, and um, and not just talk about morals all the time, but to explain like the beauty of and freedom of living a active uh, relationship with Christ and discipleship and everything and the the adventure of it all. But like sometimes you just need to get down to brass tacks and be like the order it goes: marriage, then sex, then children. Okay, that's the right order. And anything else is a sin. Yeah. Because our culture is exactly the opposite. It says the exact opposite. And if you, and that is a huge and fundamental difficulty that if you buy the culture's version of that, then the church looks crazy and antiquated. And, uh, and you don't, you're just like, you're kind of writing us off that we don't have authority to communicate God's message and commandments to, to people. And uh, so <laughs> it is kind of like the doctor. Like, I, I can explain to you, there are good reasons why I'm telling you you mm -hmm. can't do this. But for now, just go ahead and trust me, right? Because it'll be better for you. Yeah. Um, that's... That's it. And some people will demand the reasons and some people even when they hear the reasons will still write you off and do whatever they want anyway. But and that's fine. But if we don't at least like preach the message, if we just keep preaching the sort of flowery like um, soft moralism of like 
you know, do unto others and, you know, be, do good things for the environment and kind of like non-controversial things. Like everybody can agree that, okay, obviously those are good. But the ones that are difficult that people are regularly ignoring either because they uh, know the church's teaching and reject it or they're ignorant of it and they don't, they don't even realize, oh, the, I thought the church stopped teaching that because it, you know, it's so weird. Like, no, we still, <laughs> we still believe that sex is properly located in marriage and that it's uh, meant not just for the union of two people, but also the procreation of children. Uh, and to rewrite the meaning of that has profound implications for both your relationship with your spouse and your, your spiritual health, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not a, I'm not a knee jerk, uh, like antiquarian, like we need to move back or be, you know, be more, it's the last thing that I would want, but the, it, the more I'm just in the trenches, the more I realize like most people, or at least a lot of people need to just hear the, the naked truth about things. You know, uh, this is what Christ, you know, like Hennessy's whole thing on abortion was Christians don't kill their children, period. Mm. You cannot both claim to be a disciple of Jesus and kill your own child. It's incompatible. And so there are a lot of things like that. Yeah. And so I guess the, the bubble of the seminary, it's nice because everybody's sort of on the same page and you take for granted, like everybody here is trying to do their best to obey the will of God. And not all of us yep. are perfect and not any of us are perfect. And we're all fa failing each day and we're learning more about God's mercy and, and his patience with us. But, you know, we're growing, you know, this is beautiful. And then you go out and, uh, you know, what people, when people hear God is mercy, all they hear is permission to ignore him. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that the doctor example is a really good one. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a but, very apt analogy. But I don't know. It's I guess maybe there's in me like just thinking about like what's, I don't know, like what's the deeper question or issue? Because that certainly is the state of things. Like, I mean, that's, there's no reason to like beat around the bush on that. But it's like, yeah, I mean, what would, I, I don't know, maybe to stick with the analogy a little bit farther, but um, like if someone is just does not believe that the doctor knows what he's talking about and will not like do what he says, then but you'd have to like bring up some type of scenario where like the doctor was really like under a responsibility or an obligation to like try to care for that person. You know, you can't just discharge them from the hospital. And oh, maybe right. that's like maybe that's like the frustrating part about the tension of the situation you're describing is like you you just can't like write those people off. No, anyway. no, nor do I want to. You know, those right. are the people yeah, that I, most I the most yeah. tug my heartstrings. That I most want to get in touch with and continue to see at the at the parish and and stuff. You know, there are the people I'm looking like the people I've made connections with. Uh, either you know, they wanted to be godparents for uh, baptism, so I talk to them in baptism prep, or I, you know, they're doing marriage prep, so I'm talking mm -hmm. to them there. And you're having conversations and really honest human ones, and they're able to to voice their questions and 
their desires like, yeah, I know I really should take my relationship with God more seriously and something I've wanted for a really long time. And then I say, okay, here's one way to do it. Go to mass on Sunday. Yeah. Find a way to make it happen. I know you're tired from working all week, but if it's important to you, you will put it as a priority and do it even if you're tired. And then you continue to not see people at mass and you're just like, what could you even do? You know, go pick them up. And, and here's them. just an honest, here's just like an honest question in that of like, do you find that that works? Like, do you find that that's effective? Uh, that what's effective? Like, just exact. Like, take that scenario of like this person expresses a like desire or need or whatever you call it to deepen their relationship with God, and you say, okay, like go to mass on Sundays. Like, do you find that that's effective for like the ears of the people that you've been around as a priest? No, because that okay. That is maybe that's what's been like kind of sitting with me this whole time is I have not found that and it's not I'm I'm not a priest. So I've never had in that context, but just in like relationships in my own life or even when I worked as a missionary, etc. Like I found it didn't work. Yeah, that's what's frustrating is it doesn't work. And so you're, yeah, I don't think like anything you said is wrong. I don't think it's too harsh to to preach on it at all. Like you're telling the truth. But I guess like my question in it is, it's like, okay, and and you know, obviously you're gonna have situations where whatever you say is probably gonna affect somebody. Um, but if it doesn't work, then. Like, what's the question they're trying to ask? Like, what are we missing? Yeah, because maybe that's what I'm trying to ask. Like, what what the hell right. are we missing? Yeah, that's a good question. Cause, well, because that makes me wonder: is their question authentic? In the sense that, like, what do you actually? One, do you actually think that this is effective? Do you actually think that there is a remedy? Or even before that, do you even think you need a remedy? And so it. Not not questioning the authenticity of of their desires and what they're asking, but like what's actually under the surface that we are missing? Because I I don't know. Because it's either they don't believe that like this is important, or two they don't need it. Like I don't actually think that I'm sick. You know, therefore why would I see or listen to a doctor? Mm-hmm. So I yeah I have no clue what's missing there. Yeah, and I've tried all sorts of different approaches and tones with people. I've had a lot of opportunity to do it, and I have seen some people uh, respond, you know. But the more it's kind of like it's kind of like you see people raising their kids, and and some people really reason with their children, even when they're very young, like you know, please do this because you need, you know, and give them reasons, and please don't scream and or steal from your sister because blah blah blah. And then there are parents that just, you know, punish right away and give no explanation, you know, just like immediate negative punishment. Um, and then there's some in between, you know, like where it's harsh but fair and reasoned, you know, and there are expectations. And if you step out of line and behave in a way that's unacceptable, then there will be consequences, you know. Um, and so I guess we're really un- uncomfortable, at least I am. Uh, to some extent, with treating people like children uh, and 
and being harsh with people because I recognize that, look, I am, I'm here to help you. You know, I am like a doctor, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth about what's right. And like, just like a doctor would tell you, don't have too much to drink. Don't eat too much sugar and, and stuff like those things don't change just because you like sugar. You know, the rules on that stuff don't change because biology doesn't change. Uh, but I'm not here to force you to do anything. You know what I mean? I want you to do these things because they'll make you happy and healthier and closer to God and improve your relationships with your family and in your work and everything. Um, but if you don't trust me, that's one thing. But if you trust me, but you just don't think it's that important, that's another thing. And there's some, there's some level of forcefulness. Like when you, you know, we, we are used to doing this with the sacraments where you say a kid has to go through this and do this and, uh, get the bulletin signed at mass to make sure that he was mass at mass on Sunday in order to receive confirmation with people who are literally children. We have no problem setting all these expectations and saying, unless you, unless you do what we say, you can't have this. You know what I mean? Even though all of those are empty threats anyway. I've never once heard of a kid not getting a sacrament because they didn't fulfill some service requirement or whatever. You know, people just, mm -hmm. they're, they're empty threats anyway. Um, but that whole carrot on a stick thing, like you can't have this thing you want from us unless you do this does sometimes work and it does change people's behavior. But what I prefer, what I want is to communicate why this is important um, for you so that you respond in freedom, you know, and that I guess at the end of the day, it's just it's just the witness of it, like the constant, the consistent preaching, even though a lot of times you're preaching to the choir, you're preaching about these things to people who are already at mass on Sunday. Like, when do you get out and actually deal with people um and it's not a numbers thing either you know like if you make it if you make an effect in one person's life or in a, a small group of people's life like a bible study or an rcia or this group i'm doing this summer with uh, couples about marriage you know it's sort of building a small community of disciples and, and communicating to them why it's important to go deeper and then they'll invite others and it's the, you know, like the ministering the way jesus ministered in these groups with spiritual multiplication rather than trying to take on the whole culture all at once, uh, not just of your parish, but of the entire Western world. And that is kind of a fool's errand, but uh, you, you end up with all these challenges of like, how do you, maybe that's it. It's the cross relinquish control of your life. You know, just get up and do what God wants you to do today. And if that includes helping other people see what God wants them to do and giving them the grace to do it, then great. Praise God. But uh, it's easy for me, I guess, as a man to want to change things and want to fix things and build things. And when I see what God sees every day, which is rebellious and stubborn, willful creatures, I'm just like, ah, <laughs> do this different. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I'm still stuck on that question of, and I, this is like a very, very hypocritical question to even pose, but it's like, yeah, I mean, just how you even like laid that out. It's like, what do I not get? Like, how do you, and maybe it's, maybe it's a broader question too of like, yeah, how do you like, 
talk to people today like about the gospel i mean how do you and it's a question like you know i think is just inherent in my own life too like literally i have my i'm going to after class this afternoon i'm going to confession because i need to you know it's been a few a few weeks Mm -hmm. so it's like i don't know i don't know i i don't yeah because the question that came to mind was also a very hypocritical one and very prideful on top of that in vain. So it makes it even sweeter. <laughs> it's got like all question. of them, all of them present there. Um, is like, I, if I can do this, I'm certain that somebody else can. Um, and I know that's, that's not fair in a lot of ways because I've, you know, I'm a different person, different circumstances. I've received a heck of a lot. Um, but I mean, if I'm totally honest, like it's not easy. I'm a very sinful guy and I have deeply sinful inclinations. And seriously, it takes every single day, even in a seminary surrounded by guys that are striving to live as saints, hopefully. Like it's hard every single day to wake up and give your life to Jesus and say like, this isn't mine. I want you to... to take control of it and to guide me and to lead me to sanctify me because I've tried it on my own and I suck at it. Uh, but it is, it's really hard sometimes. I mean, I don't know if that's y'all's experience as well, but Mm -hmm. Christianity, especially where I grew up in the United States where we have tons and tons of stuff, just so many options. Like you can choose to do, you can do anything. That's the American motto. Like go and, and do it and make it. I was just thinking, just maybe, maybe to add a little bit of humor to this freaking downer <laughs> podcast that we've had. But it was like, we've railed on a couple of times in this podcast that we don't want to be life coaches. Right. And it's like, I literally, I think it was over the summer I was thinking about that and like why that always has been like so big in my mind. And I was thinking like, honestly, if I could think back to a day or if I could like, live a day whenever this was this is probably like yeah maybe early summer so it's been a few months ago where i just lived like a kick-ass day like i got out of bed you know i like planned it out got my holy hour in got my rosary in got the office in mass workout like these conversations etc if I could literally just do that once, not even perfectly, but like how I had intended to do it, then I would consider like possibly being a life coach. And dude, I haven't been able to do it. No, like no, no joke. I haven't been able to do it. Yeah. That is so true, man. That's like the, the line Nick Blaha quoted when we were up in the mountains in Wyoming last year. Uh, it was some poet, now I'm forgetting who it was, but they asked him if he believed in the afterlife, the immortality of the soul. And he's like, well, I didn't when I was younger, but now I'm starting to think more and more that it is true, that the soul is immortal. And they're like, well, isn't that just because you're afraid of dying? And he's like, no, it's more because I'm getting closer to dying and I'm only just now learning how to live. It seems like such a waste <laughs> to learn how to live right at the moment of death and then to just be annihilated. 
there has to be some reason. You know, it's taken me this long to figure out the art of living. And that is that has continued to haunt me because I agree. I don't know how to live like every single day. That's why I guess I feel like the stakes are so high Mm. for everybody to get to get a relationship with God, even to just get the fundamentals of uh, like a moral compass and a a habit of examining your conscience and the uh, the will not just to do what's like make healthy choices or our kind of banal postmodern bourgeois morality of like just keep up appearances and make sure you don't do anything that really screws up your future but really like do good and avoid evil that is the purpose of my life just get that basic thing back in the center uh, and you need you need god to do that because god is the author of right and truth and all that because without it you're just totally at sea i know it because i am like it's it's the rare person that whose priority is not god that will have a productive happy and selfless meaningful life and have a have a family life that is intact and integral and um, be able to raise another human being i mean for god's sake if you can't tell right versus wrong or if you if you can't follow through on your commitments what chance do you have or what will do you even have to to teach a kid to do that you know so yeah it's because i guess it's because it's my own weakness that I feel so strongly about this that I want I want to help people have that encounter. And, and I mean, it goes back to my whole elevator pitch of why I want to be a priest, a belief and a desire. The desire is that everybody be happy uh, and alive and fulfilled. And the belief is that in order to have that happen, we all have to encounter God and radically reorient our lives to his purpose for our life. Um, and apart from that, I believe that we are kind of at sea and grasping for straws and in the dark. But if you do have God as your lantern, you will know the next step, even if, even in your weakness, you know, even in your falls, you'll have confession available, you'll have the mass, you have these guaranteed encounters with God that you can build as habits, as architecture and furniture in your life that you can count on him. And that is so has been so important to me, and I, I know it would be important to you if you could see the value of it. And it's out of love. It's not, it's not just like harsh criticism or Pharisee, Phariseeism that I, uh, feel more convicted now of the, like, preaching the hard truths. And I'm kind of a hypocrite. I'm not doing it. Like, I still, I still shy away from being the harsh guy, you know? Sure. Um, and part of it is my own weakness. Like, I, I care what people think of me. I want people to think I'm the nice guy and want people to like me. But, the prophets and Jesus and the saints, you know, they were not the most popular people in their time and place. Uh, and this is probably not going to be our most popular episode if I even post it. Yeah, no, yeah <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. I'll stand by the episode. Yeah, no doubt. I feel Dude, like, I'm I, an ass and you're an ass. That pretty much sums it and up. And we need a savior. <laughs> yeah. So the discussion questions for this episode can be found at threedogsnorth.com slash bummer. (laughs) Yeah.
Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.